1: Stocks struggling for direction as a brutal week for the bulls comes to an end, though the Nasdaq is seeing some pretty nice gains today. The most important hour of the trading day starts right now. Welcome to The Closing Bell. I'm Melissa Lee in today for Sarah Eisen, and let's take a check on where the market stands right now. We are higher across the board. Technology really leading the way with the Nasdaq, uh, looking at a 1.8 percent gain so far in the session. The S&P 500 up by seven-tenths of a percent in terms of sectors. That three-week low in crude, that's taking the energy sector on the S&P lower today, and we are seeing. Some outperformance in some of the big cap techs with a notable exception of apple uh, take a look at some of the biggest losers of the week on the s p 500 which itself is looking at a five percent loss for the week some pretty remarkable downside moves Coterra down 21 and a half percent for the week, followed by EOG, Schlumberger, Halliburton, Devon Energy, no surprise, all energy names with this uh, three-week low in crude. Coming up in today's show, chart expert Chris Verone says the market pressure will not be over until quality stocks fall even harder. He will break down the level to watch specifically. On Apple we just mentioned it as a relative underperformer compared to big cap tech today it's far below where it it's today let's get straight to the markets as the S&P 500 paces for its worst week since the start of the pandemic following the feds big rate hike joining us is Allianz chief economic advisor Mohammed El Aryan Muhammad, it is always a pleasure to get your take on things thank you Melissa what do you make of this entire week what's what's the message from the markets
2: You know, it's a week in which the market got worried first about inflation and then about growth. And we've ended up being whipsawed in in the fixed income market, but under enormous pressure in the equity market. And that's what you would expect.
1: In terms of the moves that we've seen, we've seen some pretty extraordinary moves, not just on the equity side, but specifically in fixed income. Also in the credit side, we saw junk bonds of spread go above 500 basis points for the first time since I think 2000, Mohamed. So how do you interpret all of that in terms of the potential stresses the markets could be facing?
2: So I think we've realized that inflation is such a problem that this Fed is going to tighten significantly. We've also realized that other central banks are going to join in. So we are pricing in a significant tightening of financial conditions globally. That was very clear this week. And then we went to the next step, which makes sense, which is what about the economy? And now, not only did we have interest and inflation rate risk, but we have credit risk being priced in as well. And that's why you saw what you saw in the bond market, especially the most vulnerable segment of the, of the, of the corporate bond market.
1: In terms of junk and in terms of um, some of the zombie companies out there, Mohammed, I mean, there are so many, there's a whole cadre of companies that got financed at, at free money, basically, free cost of capital. Should we be concerned about that, um, about the chickens coming home to root, so to speak, uh, and the impact? Could that be systemic in any way, do you think, or are, are things different this time around?
2: So I don't think it's systemic. I do think we're going to see a significant uptick in the default rate. I do think we're going to discover that all sorts of things were done at zero interest rate, massive liquidity injections by central bank that do not make sense and they will not make sense. I don't think that's systemic. What is systemic, however, is that we get a global slowdown that produces further complication on this inflation growth um, tug of war. So I I, I am worried about the global outlook more so than a week ago, but I don't think we have a systemic issue within the financial sector like we did in in previous downturns.
1: Just to home in on that notion, Mohammed, about the the further complications, because everybody around the world is is tightening at this point practically, except for China, I guess. Um, Does that mean that we're more prone to a deeper recession or that we're more prone to a stagflationary environment?
2: So we're certainly prone to a stagflationary baseline, and the risk of a recession is going up. Melissa, there's one issue this week which I think was the most significant issue that happened, and it's not the Fed, it's the Swiss National Bank. The fact that they hiked by 50 basis points has a ton of information content, and what it basically tells you is that there are very few central banks that want to see that currency depreciate. Yes, Japan but very few away from that. And what that tells you is that this tightening is going to feed up to itself because central banks are going to want to avoid more imported inflation. So they're going to try to protect their currencies by hiking. And that means we're going to get an even bigger global hiking cycle than we would have otherwise.
1: So it's a, it's a race, basically, to defend currencies. It's a race for rates to go higher, which is the complication here. So, Mohammed, in terms of what we need to see for the equity markets here, uh, you know, there, there's some line of thinking that we do need to see PEs come down further, that we need to see earnings estimates revised lower. What do you want to see to feel like we sort of flush through or priced in a lot of these concerns?
2: So two things. I think PEs are important because they need to reflect not just interest rate risk, but also credit risk. Two is I need to have more confidence that we're not gonna get pockets of illiquidity. We're starting to see little pockets of illiquidity. They're not systemic in any way, but it's important that they remain small. So those are the two things that we need to see before I would feel comfortable putting a lot of money back into the marketplace, even though I must tell you, Melissa, there's some attractive single name valuations.
1: And, and I'm just curious, Mohammed, in terms of the attractive thing, it's hard to wrap your head around that when you see, you know, integer moves within a single day on some of these big cap stocks that you wouldn't think move in that way. And, and especially when you're trying to grapple with what is a historic P.E., because what sort of what sort of environment are we in right now? I mean, if you slapped a 16 and a half P.E. on stocks right now, that's a historic average for the S&P 500 over the past 10 years. Is the environment average?
2: No, because we're transitioning from a very loose liquidity regime to a much tighter liquidity regime. So we're gonna have to overshoot historical levels before we stabilize.
1: Mohammed, thanks so much for your time. Great to speak with you.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Mohammed El Arian. Shares of Apple Meantime down 4% on the week and 25% on the year, but one chart expert thinks there's a lot more room to the downside. He'll join us next to explain why that matters to the entire market. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane
3: management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com
0: slash methane. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let's check out today's stealth mover. It is us getting an upgrade to a buy from Goldman Sachs. The firm signing a strong position in the salty snack category. Hmm saying that's can benefit from faster growth, lower private label exposure and better pricing power. Goldman Sachs also noting the company's recent pullback in valuation as a compelling entry point. That stock is up more than six percent right now. Stocks in the green today recovering after yesterday's massive sell off. Joining us now is Chris Varone, head of technical analysis at Strategas, a Baird company. Um, Chris, so we bounced. But what do you make of, of yeah. the charts right now for the S&P?
4: Hey, Melissa, well, I think number one, we ought to distinguish between an oversold bounce and a major capitulative bear market bottom. I think there are two different things. It's not difficult to make a case that we're tactically oversold here and you can rally, you know, into late June, into July. I'm not opposed to that. But in terms of the conditions of a major bear market low, I just don't think we can check enough boxes. I mean, capitulation is defined by swellings of volume. Haven't seen it. It's it's defined by big spikes in put call ratios. Haven't had those. It's defined by VIX above 40, 45, 50. Haven't seen that. So I think we need to distinguish here between bounce and major bottom. I don't think this is the latter. And I would also just add, remember, upwards of 60% of the Russell 1000 is back to where it was pre-COVID. If S&P went back to where it was pre-COVID and followed that script, you're talking 34, 3,500 S&P. That's been our target. I don't think that's a stretch, given what the conditions look like uh, under the surface here.
1: And, and in the path to roughly 3,500 on the S&P uh, 500, Chris, you say Apple has a yeah. long way lower to go.
4: Yeah, I think you know, these, these declines or these capitulative lows are often characterized by the best stock of the cycle falling last and hurting people. And that's been Apple this entire cycle. And I just don't think we're done there. Apple is not at major support yet. Major support we've called Apple is at par, Apple at $100. That's the long-term 200 week moving average on Apple. That's been support many, many, many times over the course of this 10 or 12 year cycle. I think Apple to 100, Microsoft to 200, Tesla to 450. Those are some of the levels you wanna kind of keep in mind of okay, where does this index ultimately bottom with those stocks in those areas?
1: Did you, you said Tesla to 450, Microsoft to what level?
4: Microsoft 200 is kind of long-term support there. So, 200. I mean, you're still talking about between Apple and Microsoft. Mm-hmm. That's, that's down 15 to 20 from here uh, on both those names.
1: Wow. Um, So these are the big cap tech stocks and these are the generals, right? So in in the last stages, um, they come for the generals, so to speak, Chris. But we've certainly seen a lot of other sectors being taken out much earlier. It's been sort of a rolling correction that we've seen, particularly in in a lot of the innovation stocks and the fintech stocks. And I'm wondering, is it possible, Chris, that there are opportunities there that they have perhaps staged some sort of a, a bottom or close to a bottom before these big cap generals have?
4: Well, I think not only is that possible, that's, that's frankly, historically likely. You know, By the time mm-hmm. you get to your index low, most stocks have typically bottomed. I think of, like, 2008, 2009. The S&P bottomed in March of 2009, but most stocks actually bottomed in October of 2008. So there was a six-month gap between when most stocks made their low and when the index did. So, Mel, I, I think that's the appropriate way of thinking about that here. Now, I don't think we should confuse a price low in some of the speculative stocks with their resumption as leadership, though. That's a bridge too far for me. I don't think these stocks that broke first are going to suddenly reemerge as your leadership, but I am totally mm-hmm. okay with the idea that they bottom before the index does.
1: So it, there could be a trading bounce in some of these names. Is that fair to say, Chris? And I'm wondering, what what pockets are yeah. you looking at for that?
4: I think I think that's reasonable. Remember, we kind of have a little bit of a purgatory quiet period here before we start to get july earnings uh, in the second half of july seasonally frankly the next six weeks are not bad we do have some of those oversold conditions so i wouldn't be shocked if you got some of that speculative tech to bounce here but again is it really going to reemerge as your leadership on the other side that's where i'm skeptical
1: last question chris a lot of people want to uh to, to enter energy right now with the pullback that we have seen is yeah. that smart or do you wait
4: I think energy is going to remain your leadership here. I recognize it's gotten slapped around here uh, these last week, uh, last week or so. I, I think it's really endemic of a bear market that they're coming for everything now. So energy has been sold, but it's been sold in the context of an uptrend. And I think really important, despite the weakness in energy equity over the last couple of weeks, there has been no stress in energy credit. I am much more comfortable buying weakness in a sector when credit conditions are relatively stable. That's still the case with energy.
1: Chris, thank you. Good to see you.
4: Thank you you too.
1: Chris Verone, let's get a check in the markets right now because we are fading uh, in terms of the gains going into the close. The Dow is now negative. We are down by about 34 points. The S&P 500 almost at the flat line up by just one tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq has a 133 point gain of one and a quarter percent. Up next, Mike Santoli heads to the Telestrator with a look under the surface of the S&P 500 and if it's starting to look oversold. And as we head to break, check out some of today's top search tickers on CNBC.com mostly macro interest today, the 10-year yield, uh, followed by WTI crude, the S&P 500, the Dow, and Tesla.
3: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane.
0: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Stocks managing to stay in the green into the close, but still lower for the week. The S&P 500 currently trading 23% from its 52-week high. Mike Santoli is taking a look at the damage that has been done under the surface. Mike.
5: Yeah, Melissa, damage has been broad. It's been deep. Many ways to measure it. Here's one of them. This shows you the percentage of stocks in the S&P 500 that are still within 20% of their high. Uh, As you can see right here, it's just over a quarter coming into today. Uh, And what I find interesting about it is how it compares to prior major market sell-offs, major market lows. Obviously, the COVID crash, that went down, you know, 35% on the S&P in five weeks or something. And that was uh, pretty much on par, though, with late 2018. Uh, Also here, interestingly, in 2001, 2002, uh, it was mostly the huge stocks that led the way down. And it wasn't really the S&P on the small side. Uh, But here, of course, is the one that really scares everybody, right? So multi-year bear markets, uh, 2008-2009, that's where you have to be careful. But I do find it interesting that, for the most part, a lot of payback is in the books. As Chris Ferron was saying, it's just the fuel for some kind of snapback oversold rally at some point, maybe not right away. Take a look at stocks versus bonds on a quarter to date basis. And why this is important is as we get into month end, you do see this mechanical rebalancing uh, of asset allocation portfolios, 60-40 type stuff. And this is total stock market down here. That is a huge quarter to date loss by historical standards. And now bonds are down too, but obviously much less. So if you were 60-40 stocks, bonds coming into the quarter, you're now like 56-44. In theory, you want to sweep money into uh, bonds. We have expiration today after uh, expiration in June. Historically, it's weak, but who knows after such a washout this week. But by the end of the month, maybe this ends up being a bit of a tailwind.
1: You said we want to sweep money into bonds at the quarter end. Sorry, into stocks. Into stocks. OK. Yes, All right. uh, because yeah.
5: stocks have underperformed. Sorry. Yes, uh, You'd want to pick those up.
1: Great. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. UBS slashing its S&P 500 price target this week following the Fed's big rate hike. But with the index down just six percent this week, how much more downside could be ahead? We'll ask the man who made that call next. The Nasdaq higher today, but the Dow is lagging. Stocks are down big on the week. The S&P 500 on pace to lose more than 5.5% since Monday and on pace for the 10th down week and 11, something that has never happened before. Joining us now is David Lefkowitz, head of equities for the Americas at UBS, who took down his year-end price target for the S&P to 3,900 from 4,300. David, great to see you. Thanks
6: for having me, Melissa.
1: Part of this is prompted by by the House's um, downward revision of where they see the 10-year yield ending the year, which is now 3.25 percent. So can you walk us through how you get to the 16.5 percent P.E. that you landed at?
6: Uh, yeah, sure. Happy to do uh, that, Melissa. So, yeah. I mean So over the last several years, there's been a, a pretty strong correlation between interest rates and valuation multiples in the market. And you know, it, it, as we've seen this year, as interest rates have risen and risen quite dramatically, that that's had a pretty detrimental impact on the valuation for in the market. So, it's really just taking on the the higher interest rate expectations and what that means for uh, for valuation. So, I, I would say though, Melissa, you know, look, we've had a 24% decline in the markets, but. Uh, I also think it's important to think about the long-term perspective here. Valuations for the market are now basically in line with the the multi-decade uh, averages, and it does suggest that you know investors should expect pretty healthy returns from here, eight to ten percent over the next ten years. So, yeah, it's it's a very murky uh, environment, but I think taking the longer-term perspective is exactly what you want to do in this kind of environment.
1: There are some who might argue, David, that estimates should come down further and that we haven't seen downward revisions or at least downward forecasts from companies yet, and that we will surely see that when the next earnings season rolls around. And I'm wondering how you start to think about that, because it's 16 and a half. It's the 20 year average P.E. It's roughly the 10 year as well. Um, And this year does not seem to be an average year when it comes to headwinds.
6: Yeah. So, look, I, I, I fully agree that we're going to see uh, downward earnings revisions. In fact, our our earnings numbers for next year are are 235 for the S and P. That's that's about seven percent lower than the bottom up consensus. But but after a 24 percent decline in the market, I think investors are expecting at least some decline in in earnings and and don't really place a lot of stock in in the estimates that are out there at this point. So I, I think investors are braced for it. Look, that doesn't mean that. We we couldn't see some, I mean, it certainly is a headwind for the market um, as part of the reason why we took our, our estimates down. But on trailing earnings, Melissa, you know, we're at 220 or so. That's in line with the long-term average that, that we're trading about 16, almost almost 16 and a half times trailing earnings. That is the long-term average since 1960.
1: What's your top uh, pick for sectors, David, going into your end?
6: so we we've had a pretty long-standing call on on energy um it has been obviously the best performing sector this year you know i still think the the outlook for energy looks pretty good especially over over time there's no easy solution to these high energy high oil prices it's going to take time to get supply and demand back into balance so you know i think that still makes sense look obviously we have a recession nothing is going to be immune and energy will get hit also. But we also think it makes sense to balance that out with some defensive exposure, which is why we like healthcare, care, uh, where valuations are still, I think, pretty reasonable relative to the market. Certainly, earnings will hold up much better than the market in, in a downturn. And, and I think a lot of the concerns around drug pricing are, are likely going away. Either they'll get resolved or they're going to move to the back burner.
1: David, thank you. Appreciate it. David Lefkowitz, UBS. The FDA paving the way for COVID vaccines for children as young as six months and a CDC advisory panel is meeting right now to discuss approval. Meg Terrell's got the latest for us. Meg.
7: Hey, Melissa. Well, after the FDA signed off on both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines this morning, uh, the decision now goes to the CDC, who, as you noted, is meeting with its advisors today and tomorrow. Uh, If that vote is favorable and the CDC director signs off, uh, these vaccines could be available to the youngest Americans as early as next week. Now, these are not identical vaccines, so it's a little bit different of a rollout than we've seen before. Moderna's is two higher doses. Pfizer's is three lower doses. And they have different dosing schedules, so it'll take you about three months to get fully vaccinated with Pfizer's vaccine versus a month for Moderna. But we also know that only about 18 percent of parents have said they want to go out and get their kids in this age group vaccinated right away. The FDA's commissioner today addressing why they think a vaccine for this age group is necessary. Here's what he said.
8: While COVID-19 does affect older and immunocompromised populations more adversely than young children, Young children can still suffer the severe consequences of COVID-19, including severe illness and death. Notably since the surge of the Omicron variant, children zero to four years of age have been hospitalized at a rate approximately five times higher than the previous peak experienced during Delta variant predominance.
7: And Mel, the stock reaction has been interesting. You are seeing Moderna stock up today. That company actually getting clearance all the way up to age 17. It hadn't yet had clearance uh, under 18. So really kind of catching it up to Pfizer. And you can see Pfizer and BioNTech are down there slightly. Mel?
1: Mac, do we know if there's any differences in the safety profiles of the two since the Moderna is such a, a, a bigger dosage up front versus the Pfizer-BioNTech, which is a, a smaller dosage over time?
7: Yeah, we haven't seen any long-term safety issues for either of these vaccines. Of course, these are small trials, so they will be looking uh, closely at that over time. But in terms of the reactogenicity, how you feel right after you get the shot, um, there are more fevers with the Moderna vaccine than there are with the Pfizer one. Um, But overall, experts that I've talked to are not worried about the profile of either of these vaccines.
1: All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. Let's take a check on where we stand in the markets is under a half an hour left to a close out this week. Good riddance, right? A lot of you are saying. Uh, Dow Industrial is higher by a quarter of a percent. S&P 500 up by 20 points. The Nasdaq composite uh, hanging on to a 1.7 percent gain right now. Coming up, we will discuss what is behind today's big drop for oil prices and if this is the start of a broader downturn for crude. And you can listen to The Closing Bell on the go by following The Closing Bell podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. you 500 up around a half a percent so far today. Here's a live look at the sector heat map in terms of leaders, uh, consumer discre- discretionary, uh, communication services, as well as uh, information technology. And today's laggard, energy, and by far the biggest laggard on the week as well. Today, energy is down by almost 5 percent. And for the week, it is down by more than 16 percent. One area of strength, though, the travel stocks rebounding after a brutal week. Take a look at these stocks. Norwegian, Carnival, American Airlines, all seeing outsized gains today. Coming up, The analyst who says now is the time to buy American Express, plus a look at what is pressuring oil prices and the latest blow to crypto. Those stories and much more when we take you inside the market zone. We are now in the Closing Bell Market Zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santelli is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Pippa Stevens on the big pullback for oil prices and Diana Olak on the latest headwind for the home builders. But let's tackle stocks first in the green after yesterday's massive sell-off. But the Dow, S&P 500 and Nasdaq still on track for weekly losses. Any solace, Mike, in, in the, by the dip, at least for today? Um. I don't know if
5: I would pull too many message uh, messages out of what's going on today, except that a lot of the big macro drivers of the pressure on stocks have uh, have backed off for now. Obviously, you mentioned energy before. Uh, bond yields have eased up a little bit. So there's a bit of tension release. I think it's also interesting to point out. So we came in today with the S&P down just about 24% from its peak. 24% historically is the average peak to trough decline in bear markets that don't coincide with the recession. So you're basically right at that, you know, fork in the road between this is kind of how bad it gets if we avert recession. Uh, Obviously, it's not a science, but uh, it's worth noting that's now still the debate, even though I think we did get maybe a little ahead of ourselves in declaring a recession parts of this week.
1: We are just talking with the UBS strategist, um, and he just lowered his forecast on the S&P 500. It seems like more and more people are revising lower their earnings forecasts. They're revising upward their expectation for recession. I would argue that that may actually be positive. That people are getting much more on the bearish side of the boat.
5: I agree. It's eventually a positive. Um, you absolutely are having people kind of marking their opinion to market as the as the the indexes have slid down. Um, now, and there's also a lot of attention on downside targets, right? Everyone seems to think 3,500 on the S&P makes sense. 3400 makes sense. Uh, it just goes back to certain you know, levels pre-pandemic and all the rest of it. So all that's a positive, I, I would say. Uh, I, I guess there's a one uh, a kind of counter to that is that strategists and aggregates still, almost all of them, see the market higher. So there's almost nobody with an official target that says we're in for more losses. But I guess I wouldn't expect that when you're down 24% in less than six months.
1: And historically, strategists and analysts are, are usually, yeah. they wait to revise lower. So Absolutely. they're, they're usually lagging. <laughs> All right, let's get to the home builders. The S&P homebuilders ETF, the XHB is up about a percent today, but still down big on the week, off more than 10 percent since Monday and new today. Wells Fargo lowers earnings across the board for the sector, including Pulte Group to 41 from 46. KB Home goes to 31 from 40. Wells also downgrading Toll Brothers to an equal weight from overweight, saying it's affordable luxury line will be tested for the first time. Diana Olick joins us now with more. Just two months ago, barely two months ago, Diana, builders like Horton and Pulte were saying in their earnings releases that demand was strong and even exceeded supply. What happened?
8: Well, rising mortgage rates and then consumers hit by inflation. And it was really like last month that even Toll Brothers said they were still having pricing power. So then we see this incredibly sharp downturn in housing starts in May, much more than expected and much faster than expected. But there's one chart I want to throw up that you don't always see in the housing starts numbers that we got this week. And that is the number of homes under construction. It is up 25 percent from a year ago. We've been talking about all this lack of supply, lack of supply. That's going to help the home builders so much. Well, guess what? the supply is in the pipeline. It's coming and the builders are reporting that buyer traffic has gone away and home sales are dropping and demand is dropping. So I think that's why you're seeing these stocks just not get a break. And of course, the analysts who are looking at those numbers that are going to be coming through that pipeline and they are concerned. Melissa.
1: Diana, earlier this week, there was a CNBC event, uh, the F.A. Summit, and, and you had mentioned that there was demand for the iBuyers program, which I thought was interesting. So people are willing to just say, take my home off my hands and I'm willing to sell at a lower price?
8: (laughs) You know, that was a comment that I got from Redfin CEO Glenn Kelman, and that was during when they were laying off people this week. He put out a big blog, and he wrote all this stuff about why they had to do the layoffs. And so I called him afterwards, and he said, well, the only bright spot in it is that our iBuyer program is suddenly getting a lot more popular. He said that, yeah, sellers are getting scared. They're worried they're not going to get the top dollar. So they might be willing to take a little less than top dollar just to get it off the market now and maybe not face something six weeks or a month from now or or whatever, two months from now, that prices are falling and they might not even be able to get what the iBuyers are giving them today, Melissa. Hmm.
1: Uh, Mike, it seems like investors are, though, willing to separate, uh, you know, home builders versus the home improvement stocks like a Home Depot and a Lowe's. Um, There's a difference in attitude toward them, you know, that people in their homes will still have to fix their homes Mm -hmm. and improve their homes.
5: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, the Home Depots of the world are almost in a way have a staples aspect to the consumption. It's pretty, you know, the run rate is there. Um, They're also big kind of free cash flow, dividend and buyback stories. Although I did see interesting charts that if you look at the percentage of outstanding mortgages right now that are eligible to refinance and obviously be beneficial to the borrower to refinance at these rates, it's almost none. It's almost never been lower because rates went up so fast. Uh, So I do think that might be one thing that you don't get is that kind of home equity withdrawal to to pay for your your house. And now you have the home builders. I look back, Lenar, Horton, Palti, price-to-book values, they're kind of in the low end of the range, not really where they bottomed in the aftermath of the housing bubble, but they're pretty getting pretty cheap here. So I guess some bad expectations are being priced
0: in.
1: Yeah, and tapping a HELOC, by the way, is much, much more expensive. Um, thanks, Diana. Diana Olek. Meantime, credit card stocks, American Express and Capital One are surging today after getting an upgrade over at Baird, which says the recent underperformance in these stocks provides an opportunity to add exposure to the group. Joining us now on the newsline is the analyst behind that call, David George, Baird Senior Research Analyst. David, great to have you with us.
9: Good afternoon, Arthur. How are you?
1: Good, thanks. In terms of what these stocks have priced in, have they priced in Uh, more delinquencies? Have they priced in, you know, what we've been seeing in the auto sector and in some other credit sectors where consumers are having more difficulty to pay?
9: Well, they've priced in uh, a very significant downturn, in our opinion, probably a very severe recession, um, unemployment of 8 to 10 percent, in our opinion. So we think the group uh, and the credit stocks in particular are pricing in what I would call a very draconian uh, scenario from a credit quality perspective. And with the panic selling, we think it's a great opportunity to uh, to start to add uh, exposure to these stocks again.
1: Talk us through um, the exposure that American Express has to travel, David. I would imagine that, you know, we we see people traveling and that should be, in theory, good for AXP. Yeah,
9: it is. It's, you know, the travel and and consumer, as you know, the consumer spend patterns are shifting from things to experiences and and travel. As you mentioned, uh, Mel, is is a huge positive for Amex. And uh, Amex is probably the most levered company in our group of stocks uh, to uh, more robust travel, and, and that's a trend we think is going to last throughout the summer, into the fall and end of the end of the year, and um, expectations are quite low in the stock, in our opinion.
1: For AXP and COF, David, you say that these companies generate a lot of cash, they make a lot of money, and, and also there's this, this lever that they can pull in terms of pulling back on marketing spend. How how, how much of a cushion is that, the, these companies' ability to, to pull back expenses?
9: Well, it's it's very significant. Um, it, it's, it's something that many investors are, are really not aware of. Both Amex and Cap One spend up to eight percent of revenue in marketing. So when credit quality is softer, you tend to see uh, you tend to see these credit card companies pull back, and and, and vice versa. So it provides an excellent lever actually um, as credit kind of moves up and down uh, through the economic cycle.
1: Should one have any concerns about the profile, the credit profile of the Capital One financial customer?
9: Um, sure I mean it's it, uh, that, that uh, cap one is in the business of taking uh, taking risk particularly in the low end uh, the low end consumer. But if you're buying the stock at, at uh, just over tangible book value and seven times what we think is normalized earnings and five times forward earnings, we think that uh, market participants are are uh, getting uh, getting paid to take that risk at, at these prices.
1: All right, David, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you david george over at baird check out oil prices sharply lower on the day right now down about six percent worries about a global growth slowdown as central banks hike rates they're weighing on prices A strong u.s dollar is also pressuring oil brent and wti on track for the first weekly decline in more than a month pippa stevens joins us uh pippa crude had been one of the few bright spots up until recently how much of this broader market dynamics versus a fundamental story here
10: Hey, Melissa. Well, for such a long time, the story really was that demand is robust while supply is remaining constrained. But we are starting to hear more and more chatter that demand could actually soften here if we do dip into a recession, if there is this global growth slowdown. And with WTI down more than 6 percent today and snapping, as you noted, a seven-week winning streak, Rebecca Babin from CIBC Private Wealth said that everyone is grasping at straws, trying to find the reason. And she said ultimately that while the fundamentals remain strong, there's no doubt that the downside scenario has grown more probable and deeper here than analysts were forecasting, you know, just a few weeks ago and even up until last week. Then there are also some technical factors at play here. Rob Bensignore from Bensignore Investment Strategies noted that oil had WTI had double topped at 122 with the downtrend showing a move below 100 bucks. And so he said that this is liquidation here heading into a three-day weekend without Melissa any upside catalysts that could push crude higher in the near term.
1: Mike, it's interesting to see the the weekly decline on crude itself, the underlying versus the equities, which is, you know, the energy sector overall is seeing about a 16% decline so far in the week. So there's a huge, even though, I mean, crude at 110 is highly profitable for these stocks.
5: Well, there's no doubt. And obviously the energy stocks get caught up in general, kind of across the board index selling. Uh, There is an element, too, of, you know, Investors in aggregate are taking massive losses everywhere, from crypto to bonds to stocks. That's been going on, and so naturally, just from a portfolio effect, you kind of have to sell what you can if you need to kind of build up a cushion again. So all that is in play, as well as you know the potential concern about demand in a slowdown scenario. You have Biden going to Saudi Arabia. The idea that headline risk might work in the direction of lower oil prices. People are increasingly talking about a negotiated settlement. Uh, between the Ukraine and Russia. Who knows if any of this is true, but that's the psychology that I think is starting to get into the market a little bit.
1: Yeah, and there had been some thinking before, Pippa, I think, that that if there were peace between Russia and Ukraine in in some way, shape, or form, that that oil would not, you know, from Russia, the energy from Russia would not actually go to Europe. It would still remain uh, banned. But if there's this this peace deal broker, that could be part of the the peace agreement. Presumably,
5: yeah. And and, and just in general, it's going to get into the world market, you know, some way or another. Yeah. Pippa,
10: I was going to say that once you implement sanctions, it is very hard to unwind them. And so even if there is some kind of peace settlement and that's a big if, you know, it, it might not be an immediate move to have it go back to Europe, as you said, and particularly now that Europe has started to implement a strategy to shift away from Russia. But also, as you noted, you know, even with WTI at 90 bucks, energy companies are basically minting money at that point. So WTI could still fall quite a bit further from where we are right now. And these energy companies could still be raking in a lot of money.
1: All right. Pippa, thanks. Pippa Stevens. Let's turn to Bitcoin here under pressure once again today, down nearly 30 percent for the week on track for its worst weekly performance since March of 2020. This comes amid another credit crunch in the crypto industry. Crypto hedge fund, three arrows capitals considering asset sales or a bailout after failing to meet margin calls this past weekend. The firm is the latest to fall victim to the crash in crypto prices over the last few months. Kate Rooney joins us. Um, so, Kate, obviously, this would mean a, a huge ripple effect for a lot of these assets that they're looking at a major asset sale under under duress.
11: Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing a ton of collateral damage right now in crypto. And it highlights some of the risk for counterparties in this and the high yield products that have almost no transparency into where they're getting, say, 18 or 20% yield in some cases. So not a lot of disclosures on the back end. It also goes back to that collapse of Luna, that stable coin that was supposed to be backed by other cryptocurrencies, it is just a reminder that there's just not a lot of transparency on the back end. And we're seeing some of these severe, severe uh, ripple effects. I'm also told some of the lockup periods, I talked about that 18% yield. A lot of the projects that give that type of yield require some of the investors to hold and keep their money locked up in these projects for, say, a year. If customers, meanwhile, if they're shopping that yield out to customers, and they have people coming in and saying, all right, well, I'd like to get my money back. They can't necessarily liquidate in some cases. So I'm told that's causing some of the issues here. And it also highlights uh, the need for people, in a lot of cases, to custody their own assets. I'm told there's a lot more discussion around that, not wanting the counterparty risk and just the focus on holding your own cryptocurrency, not necessarily going for that 20% yield, looking to just protect what you have.
1: Kate, you know what's so so remarkable is that three hours capital is actually a hedge fund that's existed for a decade so they've actually been through some crypto winters before so this is not the first time you got to think about the hedge funds that are newer and have not navigated this sort of you know treacherous price action
11: it's remarkable and i'm also told that we will likely see more of this this is probably the tip of the iceberg in some ways not to say that it will necessarily. End up sparking other issues in the broader financial markets. Uh, but there's a lot of counterparties here, and like I mentioned, not a lot of disclosure. Someone described it as sort of a, a spider web on the back end. This person's lending to this person. It's in a protocol here. There's really no way to see this transparently, even though you know the whole point of blockchain and this industry was to be decentralized have it so that you could see all of this stuff listed on a public ledger. When it comes to these companies, hedge funds, other lenders out there, you just don't have that. So I think we will likely see more effects of this play out.
1: Uh, The irony. Kate Rooney, thank you. Turning back to the broader markets, the Nasdaq holding solid gains, the Dow actually dipping negative. Just a moment ago, with us now is BD8 Capital Partners, CIO, and Senior Portfolio Manager, Barbara Doran. Barbara, great to have you with us. Uh, how are you feeling this week? Have you added to positions?
12: I don't know if you want to know how I'm feeling. Um, what a tough week. But I have been adding to positions because anytime, in my view, that you see an indiscriminate selling like we saw yesterday, where every stock is down in just about every sector, you know, that is an opportunity. So, yes, I have been in buying. I bought my usual favorites in terms of technology, Google, Apple, Microsoft, um, Amazon. But I also added Costco, Walmart. Um, because I see these as, as great names that are off um, you know, significantly for the year. And also I added GM, you know, which may be a, a bit perplexing because if we're heading into recession, um, one would argue you don't want to be in autos. But I think GM and Ford as well are both selling at recession or near recession levels. I mean, GM right now is under 5 P.E. on next year's earnings and which gives it absolutely zero value for all the electric vehicle production that will be ramping up in the 23 to 26 timeframe. So I think there's opportunities like that that are happening. It doesn't mean I think the bottom's in, it could be, or we could have another 5 to 10% down, but I think you're getting some amazing opportunities in this kind of market where investors are periodically taking big frights
1: from inflation and high interest rates. Mike, it's interesting to hear investors wanting to add to Apple and, you know, a favorite, of course, as we're hearing more and more on the technical side, we heard Chris Verone say Apple to 100 um, and then Bernstein out with a call today saying that they're concerned about Apple because so much of it is transactional. Less than 10 percent of its revenue is actually recurring revenue. Much more of it is sort of a, you know, one time buy of of an iPad or a laptop or an iPhone.
5: For sure. Um, it's, it's interesting. In a, in a broad downturn like we've had, uh, relative outperformance all of a sudden becomes suspect because you feel like, well, all that is is a lot of profits that are yet to be taken. Uh, that may or may not be true. I, I do think Apple, in theory, should also have that quality premium just because of the balance sheet, because of uh, the aggressive buyback that I doubt they're pausing on at all. Uh, you know, Buffett owns more and more percentage-wise of this company every day because they buy back stock from everybody else. Else. So it'll be an interesting experiment, actually. It's certainly more expensive than it's been on average over the past 10 or 15 years. People will say they've smoothed out the upgrade cycle. So it's a pretty good debate on this. Uh, we'll see if it has to somehow retrench that much more, just even as a symbol of broader surrender by investors who've been trying to hold on to the last things that have been, uh, that have been doing relatively well.
1: Barbara, as we look out to next week, should we see a, another sell-off, another gyration in the markets? On what's on your buying list? Well, I think well, I'm I'm fine for now because
12: unless we do have another massive sell-off, which doesn't look likely, but I don't expect much upside. We've seen, you know, five or six failed rallies this year to date. I don't see any legs to what we saw today. Maybe it goes up. But I think we're just gonna see a lot of churn as we wait to see when inflation is gonna peak, which is what the big surprise was in the CPI number a week ago. People were starting to think, investors were starting to feel inflation is peaking, they know now the path for the Fed, recession probabilities are lessening, but that CPI number you know, ended all that. So, but we are seeing lots of signs of weakening, whether it's the housing starts, job growth is slowing, although still at, uh, at record highs. So there's right. signs that the economy is weakening.
1: Barbara, great to speak with you. Have a great weekend, Barbara Duran. Um, meantime, we just saw the Dow go negative here to close out the session. Mike, what's uh, what are the internals today?
5: They're sort of net positive, uh, Melissa, but nothing too uh, skewed one way or the other. Uh, about 60% advancing volume in the New York Stock Exchange. You are up for most of the day. Take a look at the two-year note yields. Uh, you've really had this sharp turn lower in the last couple of days. This is really the battlefront between what you think about inflation and, uh, and uh, obviously the Fed. It was at 320 before we got that leak that the Fed was likely to go 75 basis points, and it did. And so now we've unwound a lot of that. So you're taking kind of a quarter point out of that two-year uh, you know, track for Fed, expectations for hiking. The volatility index has backed off. we got this expiration. We're going to finish right on 30. It's kind of the middle of the range you've been in for a while. Indecisive going into uh, month end, Melissa.
1: Month-end and also a three-day weekend, so it's interesting price action on that front, too. Mike, uh, thank you. We'll see you shortly. Uh, Meantime, as we look to close out what has been a very rough week, we are looking at major losses in the energy sector, for instance. 5.7% is a decline right now, down 17% for the week, as uh, crude oil is uh, down to uh, at least a few-week low here. Um, The S&P 500 is holding on to gains into the close. Up two-tenths of a percent, but closing the week down 5.8 percent. The Nasdaq will get a 1.4 percent gain, with a weekly decline of 4.8 percent. That does it for us here on The Closing Bell.